Our scripture text this morning is James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we do have a few of those on the back table, I see. James 4, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord for us this morning. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that you, your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose or to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is God's word. Let's pray as we consider it together. Father, again, we turn to your word. Thankful that you are God who speaks Thankful you're a God that cares. Thankful that you sent your son to live and die for sinners like us. Thankful that you sent your spirit to be an abiding presence in our lives. Lord, we pray that your word this morning in your church by your spirit would do great things among us. Lord, most of all, magnify yourself. We ask all this for our good and for your glory. Amen. Well, today, after today, there's just three sermons left in this series. And then Palm Sunday and Easter are at the end of, at the end of, at the end of March. This, this uh, year is already flying by. Just a reminder of where we are in James. We're in chapter 4, so we're, we're nearing the end, like I said. James opened, this, opened his letter with some quick takes on wisdom and wealth in chapter 1, and then a longer section on trials. He ended that chapter comparing those who merely hear the word of God compared to those who do what it says. Then chapter 2 opened with a warning regarding the sin of partiality, specifically favoring the rich over the poor. The second half of chapter 2 was devoted to the idea of faith. Without works is dead. Right? How can such a faith save you? Then chapter 3 is a warning regarding the use of our tongues and a short section on wisdom. I didn't get a chance to to mention this uh, uh, last week, but Psalm 1, I think, is a really good uh, summary of teaching about wisdom. Now, the word wisdom does not appear in the psalm, but the word righteousness, righteousness does. And I think you could substitute one for the other and understand what it says. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by, by streams of water that yields its fruit in, in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so... They're unwise, but are, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. I think we 
probably more than about any Americans understand what chaff is, right? The tumbleweed season is almost upon us. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I, could, I would argue that the Lord knows the way of the, of the wise, because the wise man or woman is the one that delights in God's word. So, a, a, a little tag from, from last week. So this morning he warns us about, uh, uh, James takes time to warn us against worldliness. I divided this into three, three, three parts. Uh, verses 1 through 3, we're going to talk about passions and prayerlessness. Verses f- uh, 4 and 5, we're going to talk about spiritual adultery. And then verses 6 through 10, the way back to God. So let's first look at verses 1 through 3. Passions and prayerlessness. Let me read that again for us. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Basically, what James is saying is this. What's wrong with you people? (laughs) Right? What's wrong with you? There must have been something going on in the life of that church that was, there was, there was contention. And basically what James is saying is that your passions are inside you. That, that your sin is leaking out. And, and we got to remember the church is made up of saints, but we're also sinners too. And so when those sinners start spending time with other sinners, eventually sin is going gonna, is gonna to come out. And, and causes all kinds of fussing and fighting, if you will. It breaks out in the church. Now, thankfully, we're a fairly small church, so it'd be pretty tough to, to, to have that. Uh, but, but those of us who've been part of larger churches know, oh, those families, they, that family does not like this family. So we don't ever have them sit near each other. And I mean, there are all kinds of things that happen in, in the life of a church. Now, does he mean, uh, in verse 2, literally murder? I, I don't think so. I think what he's saying is a word or a glance or an action um, you know, his, his, his half-brother Jesus, of course, talked about the idea that, that, he, that we could murder with a single word. And he just spent quite a bit of time talking about the, 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 uh, the poisonous tongue. And so you desire and you don't have, so you, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Notice it's almost like a, that's almost like a, an individual proverb there. You do not have because you do not ask. And even when you ask, you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your passions. And so one of, one of the problems we have as Christians is it's not just the passions within us, but then our prayerlessness. Our passions and our prayerlessness go together. We have heart problems, <laughs> is what James is saying. And finally, we, finally, we're getting to this poor part. I feel like James is kind of dancing around the heart this whole time. He's been talking about the tongue. He's been talking about faith and works. But when is he going to get to the heart? And, and, and he's finally come to that. Notice what he says. First of all, he says, we desire what we don't have. We desire what we don't have. We're jealous for it. We're not content with what God has given us. That, and that can be oftentimes our employment or our, 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 our salary, if you will. Sometimes it's our homes. Sometimes, if we're honest, we're disappointed in our children 
or our children are disappointed in our, as children were disappointed in our parents, okay, at different ages, we desire what we don't have. And we also covet what others have. We see we, the, the grass always looks greener on the other side of the fence. And so covetousness is, is a, just a nasty sin. We want to have what others have. And we're not content with what God has given us. Envy and covetousness is the sin behind almost all sins. Right? Envy really poisons our relationship with God. And we'll end with one another. How can we possibly function in a relationship with God when we feel like he's holding, us, he's holding back from us? That's really what's happening. When we say that we're not content with what God has given us, we're, we're convinced that God could give us more if he was just a little more generous. He was just a little more open-handed and a little less miserly. And so that relationship with God is poison and with one another. It's hard to have a good, positive relationship with somebody where you want, where you think not only that, that you want what they have, but that you deserve what they have. Why, why, why can't I have the job that John has? Why can't I have the, 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 the marriage that Sally has? Or whatever it is. You know, we consume rather than serve. When we're constantly thinking about what we don't have, that means we're thinking about consuming and not serving. We talked about that last week. The idea of wisdom is the idea of serving over consuming. And that worldly mindset needs to be countered by a lifestyle of prayer. It's the only way that's going that, 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 to be countered. We must learn how to pray consistently, continually, kingdom prayer. We have to learn to be consistent with our prayers, meaning that we, we spend time each day praying we also need to be continual about our prayers, meaning that it's almost like we always keep the line open with, with, with God. We, we perhaps say amen, but we really need to come back. We mean to come back. And so uh, we're always looking for, hopefully, always looking for opportunities to pray, to intercede for other people, to, to praise God for certain things. Um, I'm, I'm usually pretty, pretty inconsistent about praying for others, but I, am, I, I will say I'm fairly consistent. Uh, and continual about praising God for certain things. Uh, I mean, it's, it, it's as silly as, as, as when people get out of my way on the highway, I, I praise God for that. Why not? That's something that God gives us, right? Look for places in your life where you can praise God, be thankful. Because where that happens, that means you're not consuming anymore. You're enjoying what God has given you. So consistent, continual kingdom prayer. Uh, at our last Presbytery meeting in January in uh, Las Cruces, um, we actually stopped what we were doing on, on the agenda and took time to pray together. Now, that sounds like probably pretty um, mundane stuff. You would think that a group of, pre of, 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 of pastors and ruling elders getting together would naturally pray together. But it's not natural. We sometimes just assume uh, the gospel and assume too much. So we spent 45 minutes together just praying. Praying for each other. Praying for RUF. Uh, praying for our presbytery. Praying for the members of our churches. Praying for churches like ours who are looking for facilities. Praying for churches who are looking for new pastors. 
And, and that's kingdom-focused prayer is really the fuel um, for what God can do in this world. It also reveals about who we are. The uh, Scottish uh, pastor, Robert Murray McShane, said, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. What a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. That made me feel awfully small when I read that again this week. Um, because that means I'm not, not as much as I need to be. And I have a feeling that I'm spending time in the company of others who feel the same way. The problem is when we don't pray, we feel independent from God. And oftentimes we look at the, the agenda for the day and say, if we could just squeeze in some prayer here, there, everywhere. And uh, I can't remember who it was, but I, I've, I've heard it said before that, that uh, maybe, maybe it was Martin Luther who said when he saw a busy day coming ahead, he doubled down on the amount of time he, he would pray. That's how much he, he knew that he needed it. And so our passions and our prayerlessness are part of our issue uh, that he talks about here in verses 1 through 3. And then there's spiritual adultery in verses 4 and 5. Spiritual adultery, let me read that again for us beginning in verse 4. Just a moment. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is a, a, to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Verse 4, where it says, you adulterous people, literally, you, you adulteresses, he's saying. James is drawing an Old Testament imagery of God's people acting as a harlot, ready to jump in bed with any local deity who would give them what they wanted. And God in this picture is a good and a jealous husband. Now, I want to make sure you understand the difference between jealousy and envy. Envy is always wrong. Envy is always wanting what, wanting what someone else has. Jealousy is, being, is recognizing that, that perhaps something, um, particularly in a marriage situation, jealousy can be a very good thing. It can, it can be something to, to, for us to realize that there perhaps is something wrong in the marriage. And so a God describes himself, he's described as a jealous husband several places in scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 4, for example, verses 23 and 24. Moses says, take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And the book of Hosea uh, is really a, a word picture for the relationship between God and his people. Right? The prophet Hosea is, 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 a, is encouraged to marry this harlot named Gomer who is faithless to him. That, and then the whole, the whole book is really a, a, a play on that. The whole idea that uh, God continues to be faithful even when we, his people, are not. And so this idea of spiritual adultery is one that's a, a rich one that, uh, is, is, that, is, that uh, James brings out from the Old Testament. Then he has this idea of being friends with the world. And specifically he says that friendship with the world equals enmity with God. That to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. Now, prepositions are important here. Okay? 
Notice it says friendship with the world, friendship of the world. Those things are wrong. Versus friendship to the world, which is not mentioned here. But I would argue that those, those small words make a big difference. Because we're being friends with the world or we're being friends of the world, I would argue that connotates a two-way relationship. Okay, so we're not, only, we're not only ministering to the world and helping them, but we're also being influenced by them in a negative way. The world here really means the system of, of, of powers and, and laws and those kinds of things that, that work against the kingdom of God. Now, friendship to the world is one way. We're being friends to the world. That means we're showing the same grace and mercy to the world that Jesus has shown to us. And we're not only encouraged, I think we're commanded to be that kind of salt and light. I couldn't help but think of John 17, of the great high priestly prayer when I was reading this. And this is going to be long, but I'd like to read the whole thing. John 17, verses 6 through 19. If you have your Bibles, turn there. We'll be there for a few minutes. John 17, verses 6 through 19. Jesus is praying. He says... I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, he's talking about the disciples here. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, Jesus says, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Notice the emphasis there. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. There's that almost, a, almost a, that idea of being of marriage, of, of stamping the name, of having an identity. Keep them in your name, which you have given me. And they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that is Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, they may be, they, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has, has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, several of these next phrases are important. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. So we are not to be of the world, just as Jesus was, was not. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. That is hard to do, isn't it? It's hard to know. One of the hardest things I think as a Christian is to learn how to be in the world, but not of it. To minister to the world, but not to be of the world. To understand the culture of the world without adopting its values. There's no, uh, I don't have a magic formula for you, but I do know that we need to pray. I think the prayer, the idea of prayer, the idea of Jesus to be even be praying for us in that regard is a good indication that we have a lot of work to do. So be in the world, but not of it. Um, and particularly, uh, particularly, we don't want to seek the world out 
to, for, for us to try to, get, to, to, to gain what we can only gain through our relationship with, with, with God himself. That was the problem with the Old Testament Israelites. They were always looking for a, a local God. They were trying to hedge their bets, particularly as farming people. They were, always, they were not always convinced that God could be the God of the universe. I mean, he may be the kind of God who was able to, to get them across the Red Sea and bring them out of Egypt, but was he really the God that was going to bring them crops? He was going to bring them moisture? And so they were always hedging their bets. And I bet, I think, I think when I look at my own heart, I oftentimes hedge my bets too, except I don't pray to local deities asking for rain. I worship things like success and money and other things. And so that's the idea of, 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 uh, of spiritual adultery in verses 4 and 5. And then finally, thankfully, James spends half this passage talking about the way back. The way back. So if, we're, if, we're, uh, if our passions are eating us up, if we're, prayer, if we're prayerless, and if we are spiritual adulterers, well, there's a way back, James says, beginning in verse 6. Those first five words are great, but he gives us more grace. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So it first starts with a promise. He gives more grace. He gives more grace. But to whom? Whom does he give more grace? To the humble. That, that's a, a quote from Proverbs 3.34. There, God opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble. So therefore, we're supposed to submit ourselves to God. Humble ourselves. Right? The Ephesians 5 chapter, that's, that's often talked about marriage. Uh, verses 22 to 33, where where it says, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. And then the, you know, the, 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 I see the elbows coming out, the, the husband elbows the wife. It's a see, see, you got to submit to me. And then, of course, she elbows twice as hard when it says, basically, the husband has to give his life for his wife. That all starts with, uh, with verse 21, right? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Men and women, boys and girls of all ages, are asked to submit ourselves to God, to humble ourselves, to not be proud, because God opposes the proud. And so that's a promise to rely upon. If you're never sure what to do, submitting to God and being humble is almost always a good, is almost always a good thing. And prayer, back to prayer, that's one of the best ways to do it. And there's kind of talk here about resting and resisting, right? Resist the devil, it says, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. There's a lot of parallelism right there. There's, uh, uh, as I said before, James is a lot like Proverbs. So we're not supposed to ignore the devil nor blame him for everything. We don't run around saying the devil made me do it. Um, the devil is not sovereign. But he's also a real, he's a real presence. It says simply here, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But then do the opposite with God, draw near to him. And he will draw near to you. So don't ignore the devil. Don't blame him for everything. But do rest in God's presence. Resting and resisting. 
And then we have repentance. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Both our hands and our hearts need cleansing. Right? Our hearts fuel everything that we do and think and say. And our hands are representative of, of, our, of our actions and our deeds. We're to take sin seriously. Be wretched and mourn and weep. No, I've never heard anyone say this was their life first. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. In other words, take sin seriously. We're not to, to wink at it. Uh, there's not to be lighthearted gaiety about it. But this, this word wretched really stands out to me. We often sing, we actually sing the, the hymn by Joseph Hart called Come Ye Sinners. And our version, the one we've been singing, says, Come ye sinners, poor and needy. But the original text by heart was, Come ye sinners, poor and wretched. That wretchedness is, is more than neediness. Wretchedness means you're, there's nothing redeemable about you. There's nothing that you can give. We're to be wretched, it says, and mourn and weep. Because, not, because we're supposed to feel that way about our sin and realize that we have a Savior who didn't just weep and mourn for our sin. He then went to the cross to pay for it. And notice the result in verse 10. Thank goodness for verse 10. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. That the good news is for those of us who throw ourselves at God's mercy, we will be exalted. There's nothing better than being exalted by God, being picked up by him. And so I think uh, as we close up this morning, I was, I was noting that uh, one of the commentators I read called this the gospel according to James, verses 1 through 10. The gospel according to James. Well, what would Martin Luther think about such a thing? You may, you may remember how Luther thought that James was like a second-rate New Testament book. Shouldn't even be in the canon, he said at different times. Well, Luther agrees a lot more with James than he realizes. His first public words, the first thesis that, were, that was nailed to the door of Wittenberg in 1492 said this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that this, the entire life of believers should be repentance. Okay, he said repent. When Jesus said repent, Jesus intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. And then his last words, jotted down on a quick scrap of paper before he died, said, we are beggars. This is true. I think that's really interesting. So our lives should be one and marked by repentance, and we are beggars. We are simply beggars. You know, I was thinking about this. I can, I can happily call myself a proud husband because I'm, I adore my wife, and I think she's the greatest thing since sliced bread, and maybe even better than that. I'm a proud parent, love my boys, think they're fantastic. I'm a proud American, I love my country, even when it's not always uh, uh, the place that I wish it would be. But a proud Christian, it's a contradiction in terms. The Apostle James would counsel us to grow down in order to grow up. We need to learn to humble ourselves and speak, speak softly and not carry a big stick, but instead carry the word of God. The problem with us, as I said in the, in the title of the sermon, our passions lead us to sin against each other. 
And then we make eyes to the world around us, forgetting to be faithful to our covenant God. We refuse to rest in the grace given to us in Jesus. The problem with us, our pride makes us slow to repent. The solution for us, a savior, God's son who, great, who gently invites us to find our identity in him. Let me close with these words from Matthew chapter 11. Very familiar to you, I hope, verses 28 to 30. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I have no idea who needs to hear that this morning, but I'm guessing there are a few of you that need to hear that this morning. Rest in Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Turn to him in faith. Then, because only in Christ can the problem of us be solved. Our, our sin, our flawed nature. Only in Jesus can we find rest and life, ever, and life eternal. And let's pray as we go to the Lord's table. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Thank you, Father, for that reminder. Thank you for the reminder of who you are. And Lord, we pray you would indeed raise up, raise up an Ebenezer in each of our lives, a, a place of remembrance, a place to go back to. Lord, work in us. Do work in us this morning, even as we come to the table. Lord, remind us of your great love for us and the rest you provide in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.